It's a long way across and a long way down. But for Robert Evil Knievel, married and the father of three children, waiting at the other side of the Snake River Canyon is a big pot of gold, at least $6 million big. Hello and welcome to the Dorkamoto Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we're going to tell the incredible behind-the-scenes story of Evil Knievel's failed 1974 jump of the Snake River Canyon in Idaho. This is a story of three guys named Bob, a guy named Shelly, and one of the most outlandish ideas that's ever been pulled off, successfully or not. This is the story of Snake River Canyon. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast, and this time we are talking Evil Knievel. We're talking Snake River Canyon in 1974, and talking about an improbable story that literally could never happen again today. This was a seminal moment, not only in the career of Evil Knievel, but it was a seminal moment in a day in American history. Not just because what he was trying to do, but an event also happened on the same day that was even larger than the jump, But the jump was used maybe as a smokescreen to some degree to kind of lessen the blow in the media of an announcement that was made by the President of the United States. This episode of the Dorkamoto Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. So here we go to talk about this incredible story, and I am concentrating only on the 1974 Snake River Canyon jump. It's a pretty narrow window when we talk about Evil Knievel, but the reality is there are great books on Evil Knievel's entire life, and those books are many hundreds of pages thick, and the fact is you could write a hundreds of pages thick book on just this jump, and actually people have. So that's why I'm going to keep a very tight window here. Evil Knievel's career began really in earnest in the late 1960s. He began getting paid to jump over things on his motorcycle right about 1967, and he grew to a point of stardom that is almost unachievable in 2020. It becomes very difficult to explain how famous a guy Evil Knievel was at the height of his career, which quite literally came in 1974, both literally and figuratively. But he was as famous as Muhammad Ali. He was as famous as world leaders. He was known far and wide for this ability, bravery, insanity of jumping motorcycles over things. Trucks, cars, occasionally sharks and snakes and things of that nature. But Evil Knievel's road to Snake River Canyon began back in that 1960s, late 1960s time frame. And it began at a bar, supposedly. He was drinking at in Butte, Montana. And the more he drank, as he says, he kept looking at this picture of the Grand Canyon, and the more he drank, the smaller the canyon looked. So initially, he started telling people at his events as he was going around that someday he was going to jump the Grand Canyon. And he actually pursued this idea to the point of getting meetings with the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. government to actually get permission to jump over the Grand Canyon. The government said, absolutely not, are we going to condone this, let alone sanction it by giving you our official permission. Knievel, kind of undaunted, then went looking for another place to jump. Now remember, Evil Knievel is from Butte, Montana. He understands this kind of western country maybe better than most people uh, gave him credit for. And he finds a spot in Idaho called the Snake River Canyon. 
and this Snake River Canyon would become a central theme in his life for years. And it would become a situation that we've all been in in our own lives. We've all gotten ourselves into a jam at some point. Most times, for us normal human beings, it's a jam that's more annoying than it is dangerous or not something that makes the national news. But maybe you've promised something to somebody, maybe you've agreed to do something that you don't really want to do, and you kind of force yourself to do it just to make sure that you complete what you said you're going to do. In the case of Evil Knievel, he promised the world he was going to do something. And when the time came to actually try and do it, he regretted it immensely. Evil Knievel, make no mistake about it, was pretty much positive he was going to be dead by the end of September 8th, 1974. You'll find out why as we get through this story. But the build-up to this jump is ultimately even more impressive than the jump itself, which, as we all know and history has shown us, was an abject failure. But the build-up to the jump is where the real story is. And the four main central players that I'm going to tell you about today are a man named Bob Truax, the man who built the rocket that Evil Knievel would ultimately fly in, a man named Bob Arum, who is a promoter that promoted this event on closed-circuit television, which is a technology that those of you of a certain age group don't even know existed, which we'll talk about, and a man named Shelley Saltman, a guy who was another promoter press man that was in charge of building the hype around this event. The hype of this event far outweighed the event itself, and as we'll come to find out, basically every portion of this entire program, as it came down to the end and actually had to be executed, was a nightmare. But it was a nightmare years in the making, and it was a nightmare that focused on one incredible, brash, obnoxious, sometimes mean, sometimes downright violent, sometimes drunk, sometimes drugged, Robert Evil Knievel. His whole life story can be told, and should be told in some format, but not this one today. It's a way too long a story to tell. So where we're going to pick this story up is we're going to pick it up in the early 1970s, as Evil Knievel has become one of the most famous people in the world, he has continued at every one of his jumps to talk about jumping over a canyon and how he was going to do it. He was going to prove himself to the world as the greatest daredevil that ever lived. That was his desire, that was his drive, and that was what got him out of bed every day. Ultimately, it would be the thing that kept him from sleeping every day and that scared him halfway to death and almost brought him to that unfortunate end. He survives the jump. I'm not trying to give you the spoiler alert here, but I'm going to do it right now so you understand what we're dealing with here. So by the early 1970s, Evil Knievel, as I mentioned earlier, has become one of the most famous men on the planet. He has a line of toys that are selling millions and millions of dollars in revenue a year. He is making so much money that he doesn't know what to do with it. Well, actually, he does. He ends up spending every single dime he ever makes. Part of that is because he's not sure if he's going to live to see next week, but he lives an incredibly flamboyant lifestyle. He is uh, has a mansion in his home city of Butte, Montana. He has all these cars. He has airplanes. He has an incredibly custom-built Mack truck. He was very loyal to Mack trucks his whole career. They built on the custom rig. Most of the jumps he did over trucks were Macs. They were kind of intrinsically linked, he and Mack truck. The endorsement deals... They made a movie about him. They made two movies about him, both of which are absolutely horrendous, but they're fun to watch because of their um, just badness. There was one called Viva Knievel. A guy named George Hamilton actually played him. If you know anything about uh, actors, George Hamilton does not exactly strike anybody as an evil Knievel-esque figure. I mentioned earlier in the show that it's impossible to really sum up how famous he was. And the reason that is, is because we live in a world where uh, you can become famous in 2020 with relative ease. You can have a viral video, get 20, 30, 40 million views. You can, you can do things that reach a mass audience 
really instantaneously. The overnight fame, if you will, actually is a thing in 2020 for some people. They go from obscurity to being nationally or internationally known in a span of days, sometimes even hours. Back in 1970, ish 1967 1970 somewhere in this time frame that wasn't really the way it worked the way you became famous during these times is one you got to get yourself on television you had to get a a mass market of eyeballs in front of you and you had to work the road and evil knievel did both of those things he jumped his motorcycles with regularity crashed with regularity he became very famous for of course the caesar's palace fountain jump which he crashed on and some of the most incredible slow motion footage of all time was captured when he failed to make that jump and that kind of rocketed him to fame and it gave us the first sense of who this guy actually was because knievel would tell these incredible stories that he was in a coma for 29 or 30 days after that and he broke all these bones he did break the bones but he was never once in a coma knievel was an incredible self-promoter and this is how he rose to fame As soon as he recovered from the Caesars Palace jump, he was able to continue jumping and he was able to land deals to get on the wide world of sports television show with regularity. And this helped grow his popularity and his crowds absolutely massively. We're also talking about a time in United States history that the country is in a bit of a rough patch. We're coming off an oil crisis. The Vietnam War had ended in its ugly way. And there was a bit of a national crisis uh, confidence of or rather a crisis of confidence in the united states and here comes this swashbuckling guy with his motorcycle doing these amazing things and halfway killing himself and scraping himself off the ground and doing it again and again and again with ever-increasing lengths ever-increasing danger ever-increasing complexity and people gravitated to evil knievel for a multitude of reasons but at the end of the day he was a larger-than-life personality who actually did the things he said he was going to do. Whether he succeeded or not was almost immaterial. He got more fame when he crashed and recovered than he did when he actually landed these jumps. But here was this guy who was saying outlandish things and then trying to pull them off. And we learned more about this guy as he would do more and more television. He would say crazy things. He would say a lot of stuff. He would, you know, he had the red, white, and blue leathers that he adopted. That became his signature look. He would... Uh, tell kids you know don't do drugs stay in school he was you know he was this seemingly on the surface like all american superhero guy and you could buy his toys and you could buy his bicycles and you could buy his you know his little kid version of his outfit that he jumped in i mean it was evil knievel fever and it was on the order of as i mentioned before anybody on earth this guy was recognizable instantaneously and he would do crazy things he would walk into a bar and buy the entire place around a booze or he would you know buy stuff for people and he would do all this stuff that he knew the value of self promotion and he also knew the more he talked about jumping this canyon as outlandish and insane as it seemed to be the more kind of steam he got behind it And Knievel knew he would not be able to pull this jump off on his own. He was going to need a network of people to help him promote it, to help him sell it, to help him market it, and to help him pay for it. Because it wasn't going to be cheap. What he's projecting or proposing to do is to build a rocket of some sort to launch himself over this Snake River Canyon. A distance of basically, he was planning on covering about three quarters of a mile. By the time you get off the ramp and get over the canyon and land, we're talking about a three quarter of a mile distance. So... We need to start talking about the vehicle that he's going to do this in. And the vehicle is called the Sky Cycle X2. 
And there were multiple Sky Cycles built by a guy named Bob Truax. And Truax will become the first major player in our story and a guy that we're going to hear from in his own words a little bit later on. But Bob Truax was a captain in the United States Navy. And he was a guy that was on the forefront of many early developments in the United States rocketry programs. He worked on things like the Polaris Missile Program, He worked on different rockets that predated some of the best-known NASA projects. So um, things like the Viking rocket, I mentioned the Polaris missile, the Thor missile. These were bleeding-edge projects, but they were not space projects. They were military-style projects. The reason or the way that Evil Knievel got hooked up with Bob Truax was through an actual astronaut named Jim Lovell. And Jim Lovell, if you're a fan of the United States Space Program, which I am, Lovell is a guy who had a very decorated career going into space. He was the first guy to ever go into space four times. He was the captain of the mission on Apollo 13. He was the guy that was in charge of that program, the famous failed mission to the moon where they had to save themselves uh, and they were, uh, as they were circumnavigating the moon trying to repair their spacecraft with only what they had on hand in space. So Jim Lovell was a fan, if you can believe it, of Evil Knievel. And through the conversations he had with Lovell, Lovell said, hey, you should talk to this Bob Truax guy. This guy is, he's sharp, he knows the drill, he knows rockets, and I think he's the guy that should build your vehicle. So Bob Truax becomes the constructor of the Sky Cycle X2 and the other Sky Cycles. The other Sky Cycles that were attempted to cross the canyon as uh, test shots and the ones that crashed into the canyon without so much as a prayer of getting over to the other side. What Truax built was a steam rocket-powered version of an aircraft drop tank. So we know the drop tanks that were hang under the wings of airplanes are auxiliary fuel tanks. They're big, can hold a couple, a couple hundred gallons of fuel or a hundred gallons of fuel. And they're aerodynamically shaped, obviously. He took one of those drop tanks, made a steam rocket that he put in the back of it, and then he added a couple little uh, canard wings in the front that were controlled by foot pedals. He added a manual parachute release that was a kind of a dead man handle. We'll get into all that in a few minutes. And he projected that this rocket with its 5,000 pounds of thrust set at a 58-degree angle on a 100-some foot launch ramp would achieve a height of a couple thousand feet in the air, would glide over top of the canyon, Knievel would release the parachute, and there was a shock absorber on the front, not kidding you, a shock absorber on the front of the, the rocket, They would land face down, and the shock absorber would suck up most of the impact of the rocket falling out of the sky at about 15 miles per hour, give or take, with the parachutes unfurled. It is as crazy as it sounds. And again, it's insane to say it in 2020. It's it's mental to say it in 1974. We'd only gone to the moon in 1969. So this idea of, of shooting a private person up in a rocket, granted not one that was going into space, but a rocket, was unfathomable, and that made it all the more juicy for the folks at home to watch. When we talk about what happens next, and now that we've explained what the Sky Cycle is, we have to talk about how this event actually got promoted. And to me, this is where it really gets interesting, especially in the context of 2020 and in the media of 2020. The next player we're going to introduce into this story is a man named Bob Arum, and Bob Arum plays a huge role in the promotion of the Snake River Canyon Jump. So Bob Arum is actually one of the few players in this story that is still alive. Arum is uh, a guy, I believe, is in his mid-80s at this point, but 
you may recognize Bob Arum's name still because he's a giant figure in sports to this day as a boxing promoter. And that's really what Bob Arum was in the 1970s as well. He started his career as a lawyer and then got involved in boxing and soon became one of the premier boxing promoters in the world. He and Don King were kind of rivalrous for many years, and uh, they had an interesting friendship, if you will, that uh, that varied from, I guess, fight to fight and week to week and to what they were trying to promote. But Bob Arum's specialty was something called closed-circuit television. And for those of you listening... Uh, that are not old like me, you have no idea what I'm talking about because you think you hear closed circuit television and you think of something like a ring doorbell or something um, that is going to send you a video or a security camera in a building. That's closed circuit television. Well, in the 1970s, there was no such thing as cable. There was no such thing as pay-per-view. So what people would do previous to pay-per-view is you would host events on closed circuit television. And what that means is you would broadcast the event to movie theaters or to arenas that people had to pay admission to see. It was pay-per-view, except you had to go somewhere to actually view it. So in the case of Evil Knievel's Jump, Bob Arum comes on board, and his sole purpose is to promote the pay-per-view, or rather the closed-circuit side of this broadcast. His job is to sell it to as many movie theaters, to as many movie houses, to arenas, to wherever he can get people to put up a screen and air this and pay the rights to air it and then give them a cut of what they earn uh, for the people to come watch it. That's how they're going to make a pile of money. In fact, the real money behind this jump was going to be in this particular closed-circuit style uh, audience. We're going to get into the live audience element of the jump in a while, but for the purposes of where the big check was going to come from, it was going to come from this closed circuit side. And you heard the announcer in that AP clip that I started the show with talk about how there was a $6 million you know, check to be collected by Evil Knievel after this jump. And that comes from the promotional tour that Evil Knievel went on as the weeks and the months were getting closer to this event. And during one of those promotional press conferences, Bob Arum handed Evil Knievel a check for $6 million. Now, like so many things you're going to learn about this story, that check was meaningless and it wasn't even worth the paper it was written on. But at the time, it was a big momentous moment. Again, we're talking about huge amounts of money for 1974. When we start to talk about a projected total earnings of this event, it being somewhere between 20 and $25 million on paper before they had it, you're talking about 140 to 150 million dollars of current money. So understand when I'm talking about a numbers like 6 million and 20 million, those are 1974 money numbers and adjusted for inflation, they are monstrous in uh, in today's world. So Bob Arum uh, has promoted, you know, fights with Muhammad Ali and fights with some of the biggest boxers on the planet. He has never in his life promoted anything like this. He has never in his life met anyone like evil can evil, and there are several stories that it's going to be uh, that it's going to be revealed that Bob Arum is just like knocked on his keister a couple times by just how out there and wild evil can evil is. So as Bob Arum is in charge of trying to sell what is effectively a, a kind of prehistoric version of pay per view for people to watch this jump and make them a, a giant sum of money, there is another man that needs to be added to this story, and his role is also on the promotional side. But this is a guy that's just simply trying to drum up the interest to get people to buy the pay-per-view. And it's all kind of being tied together by a guy named Shelley Saltman. And Shelley Saltman 
like Bob Arum, is a master of his craft. He is a master promoter. He actually called himself a con man at the time, not because of this specific jump, but because of what his job was. His job was to get the press whipped up, to get the public whipped up, and to get people to pay attention to whatever event he happened to be working on. In this case, it was the Evil Knievel Snake River Canyon jump. And Shelley Salman had such a wild experience during this event, he wrote a book. And that book will come into play much later on in our story. But it's time now to talk a little bit about this guy named Shelley Saltman. So Shelley Saltman, like Bob Arum, gained major fame in the world of boxing. And he was the primary promoter of the Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier heavyweight fights that captivated the world back in the 1970s. So Ali Frazier... It doesn't get any bigger than that. And for Shelly Saltman, he was the first person that Bob Arum called up and said, hey, my company's top rank. I'm going to be doing this pay-per-view. I want to make sure we blow it out of the water. I need you to be the front man for this promotion. Saltman signs up, and he really doesn't know what he's signing up for at this point. He just knows that there's a kooky guy named Evil Knievel that jumps his motorcycle. Kids seem to love him, and this seems like it could be a great way to make a ton of money. He finds out very early on in his promotional plan that things are not going to go anywhere near or like what he believes they will. Leading up to this jump, they had the most insane kind of march around the country in a Learjet than you can possibly imagine. For weeks on end, basically without stopping, they would go to four, sometimes five cities a day and do press conferences with all the major newspapers, radio stations, and television outlets. And you have to remember, again, this is before the internet. So when you did a press conference in Cleveland, the people in Detroit didn't hear about it. You had to go to these places physically. It wasn't like you could have one press release that you would email out to all these people and everyone would know what was going on. So they would travel from city to city. They would go and do all these press conferences every day. And as this is going on, evil is drinking like crazy. He's partying like crazy. He's becoming more and more of a lunatic to deal with. And he is saying things at these press conferences that are just like mind-bogglingly crazy. For instance, they're at a press conference, and he's talking about how uh, successful his toy line is, okay? And and the toy line was making him millions and millions of dollars. I'm going to quote from Shelley Saltman's book, On the Road with Evil. And this is from a press conference experience. There were dozens more questions, the same questions that would be asked at every press conference for the next two weeks. Evil answered them all in his Knievelish version of Casey Stengelese. And then he disclosed his idea for a new toy. Next year, I think the ideal toy company is going to make a lot of Evil Knievel toys. And I think, there'll be some, I think there'll be something that you'll be proud to have your children have. One toy I'd like them to make is my own idea. I think it's the most super toy in the world. You wind it up, it goes like a little bugger, goes across the floor, and it grabs this little Barbie doll, throws her on the floor, gives her a little lovin', jumps back on the motorcycle, and goes whizzing out of the door screaming, G.I. Joe is a not saying the word it is a derogatory term for a gay person 1974 evil Knievel ladies and gentlemen and the more he would drink the more lunatic fringe stuff he would say at these press conferences and he would go on and give these rambling answers he would become occasionally violent in the airplane he was very mean uh, unfortunately to his wife Linda who stuck with him through thick and thin he would not apparently according to Shelley Saltman's book anyway did not treat her uh, respectfully if you will and this was a guy who as the jump was getting closer and closer was getting more and more freaked out. He knew he was going to have to do this, and it's one thing to say it, 
It's one thing to build up to it, but then eventually you're going to have to actually do it. So as Saltman is promoting all of the exterior elements of this jump, trying to build audience, uh, Evil himself is basically in charge of the on-site promotions. So he's in charge of setting up, you know, how people are going to get there, where they're going to hang out, where the viewing areas will be, what vendors will be there for food, what other entertainment there will be. And in true Evil can Evil fashion, he is paying very little attention to any of this. And they're talking about the fact that they're going to expect 50,000 people to show up. And again, we're talking about Twin Falls, Idaho, which is a city that had a handful of people that lived in it, maybe a couple thousand tops. So an influx of 50,000 people scared the daylights out of the local community. And these were not expected to be quiet uh, church-going grandmothers that were showing up to watch Evil Knievel jump. There was a very large fear that it would be motorcycle gangs and hippies and crazy people of all shapes and sizes, which it ended up being. So those fears were not uh, those fears were not misplaced. But as the jump site is prepared, the ramp is built, things are getting closer and closer to happening. It becomes evident that one. They're not exactly getting the traction that they want out of these press conferences. It doesn't seem like they're going to have the audience that they had planned for in the pay-per-view, and they're not really getting an idea of how the crowd at the jump site's going to be. And there are a few problems with that. One is the amount of money they were trying to charge people to get in. Two, the remote nature of where this was going to happen. And three, the fact that there was really no one, or nowhere, I should say, else to stay out there. There was no accommodations, and people just weren't that excited about going to a very rural part of Idaho. And then there was the whole promise of the Million Dollar Party. One of the things that Evil Knievel kept talking about over the course of his promotional tour, uh, typically after he'd already been half in the bag for most of the day, was how he was going to throw what he kept calling a Million Dollar Party in Twin Falls the week before the jump. There was going to be motocross races. There was going to be all these activities to be done. He was inviting every single celebrity from, you know, John Wayne to uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier. Anybody that was alive, that was famous, athletes, actors, actresses, anybody that was cool and hip or just simply well-known was being invited to this quote-unquote million-dollar party. And it was going to be something where Joe Blow could hang out with the stars, everybody was going to be drinking for free, Evil was going to quite literally, as he said in one interview, drown the town in booze, and they were going to have the party of a lifetime because uh, he was uh, not as confident as one would believe, or he'd want you to believe, that he was actually going to make this jump. So this was going to be his big signature potential send-off. And once again, jump time keeps getting closer, there are no celebrities responding to show up, nobody's really making an effort to get out there, and as you'd imagine, people from Hollywood, again, aren't too excited to be going out and staying at a rustic rural small town in Idaho um, when they could basically just sit around and watch this whenever they wanted. Initially, ABC is who Evil Knievel was trying to get to broadcast this jump on television, and he wanted way too much money, and they said, no chance, this is not worth that much money. That's why he chose Aram, that's why he chose the closed circuit. Conversely, he did sell the rights to for ABC to air the race, or I should say to air the jump the week after it happened. So the live broadcast of this, the closed circuit broadcast, was under the purview of Bob Arum. And then after that, it was going to be the purview of ABC to air it the week after. 
and they would basically take the footage from the event that was shot in the closed circuit because it's going to be done in a very professional way. They would use that footage and make their own show, make their own production out of it. And they would have some follow-up interviews and stuff. So he gets some money from ABC for the rights. He's trying to make all his money really on this closed circuit deal because once it airs on network television, he isn't really going to get paid anymore on that. And basically all indications at this point are aiming towards a pretty crummy financial end to this thing. The huge financial windfall that Knievel was uh, guaranteeing himself mentally is not going to exist. Aram and Shelley Saltman both understand that uh, it is going to be a potential black mark on both of their careers. These guys had not missed, really, in their professional promotional lives. But as it stood right now, they were staring down the bottom of a canyon of failure, much as Evil Knievel felt he might have been staring down that same canyon. The last couple days leading up to the jump, he becomes very irritable, he becomes very moody, he becomes a guy that is uh, certainly very freaked out about what's going to happen. He is the guy that has put himself in this jam, and he knows he can't get out of it. He knows that if he doesn't sit in the rocket, if he doesn't hit the button, if he doesn't try to fly over the canyon, he is completely finished. He knows that if he does try it, there's about a million different ways he can die and only one way that he can succeed, and these odds are not looking very good. The other thing that's not looking good is this in-venue crowd. The tickets were about $100 in today's money, and they were more if you were going to camp there. So people, one, decided they weren't going to pay. Some people just kind of crashed the gate and didn't pay anything. All of a sudden, biker gangs and stuff started showing up. The crowd was, to say shocking to the folks of Twin Falls, Idaho, would be an understatement. And it was maybe 10% of what they expected. They were expecting 50,000 people. About 5,000 people had gathered at the jump site in the day or two leading up before the jump. There were some vendors there. There were some beer trucks there. And there was a lot of debauchery and craziness going on at this site. Now we move to the day before the jump. And this is Evil Knievel in his own words the day before he attempted to leap Snake River Canyon. And you can believe that he's making this up for the media, but having read extensively about his mindset leading up to this moment, having read extensively about the preparations and the failures leading up to this jump, I believe the sentiment you hear in Evil Knievel's voice at this moment is everything and totally human. It's a monster. And I think you all know now by looking at me, I wish that I didn't have to do this and I wasn't here. I mean, there's no more clear way to say it. He literally stood in front of a throng, a throng of, of media at the jump site. And he said, I wish I didn't have to do this and I wish I wasn't here. But he couldn't be anywhere else. He had to be there and he knew he had to go through with it. And that is where, in my opinion, the exasperation and the desperation in his voice comes from. He knew, despite the fact you have Bob Truax, the rocket engineer, who has built this contraption, one of a couple, the other ones have failed already. This is your last option. You know you have him on your side. You know he's smart. You know that Jim Lovell, the astronaut, kind of picked him and worked with him on a couple of things. But you also know that nothing has gone according to plan. The massive crowd you're expecting hasn't really materialized. The money that you think is coming isn't really going to get there. And then things take a turn for the severely worse the night before the jump. Several hours after he does this interview, he flies home. He's been flying in and out of the site. He's been taking a helicopter from the airport, and he's been flying home to Butte, <clears throat> Montana in the evenings to be with his family. So Knievel leaves, and the sun's going down, 
And be, the beer vendor, there's a couple of trucks full of beer, of course. The beer vendor, because of the fact that his uh, sales are not what he expected them to be, and because of the fact he is uh, probably going to lose his shirt here, decides to change the price of the beer. He apparently went from $1 to $2 on the beer cost. That was a tough move. Because what happened next was a riot. And these thousands of people charged the beer vendor flipped the trucks over, took all the beer out of the trucks, and then set them on fire. And as this is happening, they start to turn their attention to the TV compound where the cameras and the equipment are that are going to record this event. Bob Arum, Shelley Saltman, and about three or four other guys rush back to the TV compound. Between them, they have like a shotgun and a couple of pistols, and they are listening to thousands of people, rowdy, drunk, and out of control, getting ready to storm the gates and come into the TV compound. What they do is kind of genius. They take the floodlights that were lighting the compound and they spin them around and face them toward the crowd, kind of blinding the entire crowd. These are big, big kind of, I guess, arc lights, if you will, throw off a lot of light. So they've taken this crowd that is in relative darkness and now they're shining these lights on them and they've blinded them. You know, they've, they've created a defensive perimeter around their TV compound with these lights. They stay up all night long armed and waiting for people to try to charge at them, and they will shoot them if they had to. One time during the course of the night, one of the rogue elements in the crowd screamed from the darkness to this group of people, you may have the advantage now because your lights are on, but when the sun comes up, you're all dead. Imagine hearing that. You're in this tiny group of band of people, surrounded like you're at the Alamo. To your back is a 600-foot deep canyon. To your front is thousands of drunken people that are on drugs, that are bikers, that are not exactly law-abiding citizens. And you have to wait out the night. Somewhere during the night, they come up with a plan, and they execute on this plan when they recruit the Hell's Angels to become their security. What they did was they were able to find a bunch of orange kind of uh, material, and they tore the orange material up, and they made armbands. And so the bikers, uh, the ones that were friendly and on their side all tied these orange uh, bands around their arms, and that would identify them as the security force. The supposedly Hells Angels did it because of their respect for Evil Knievel. They weren't expected to be paid or anything, um, but they did this out of a, some sort of, apparently, sense of duty. So now we get to Jump Day. And now is when we're really going to dive into the classic audio from this day because it tells a fantastic story. And the audio that you're going to be hearing is from the actual closed-circuit broadcast that was then later broadcast on ABC Network um, to show this event. And even that deserves a little bit of a story. CBS was going to try and basically snake ABC out of this footage. They were going to rent land on the other side of the canyon, set up cameras and film the jump themselves and basically take the advantage that ABC had gained away. And they said, hey, you can't stop us. It's public property. We can we can rent this land and use it for whatever we want. ABC was in a real bind and they didn't know what to do until they had a young executive, a young lawyer say, hey, listen, you want to do that? That's fine. We will fly helicopters over every golf tournament, football game, and every event that you do outside, we will film over your head with a helicopter and do the same thing to you that you're planning on doing to us. CBS backed off at the last minute. That was never a problem. But it also shows how much of a calamity even the television rights were for this thing. So let's get to Jump Day. 
And let's listen to Jules Berg, who was the science reporter for ABC in 1974, explain exactly what Evil Knievel was about to attempt to do in front of a worldwide audience. Evil's projected flight begins with the X-2 poised on the launching platform on the south rim of the 1,600-foot-wide canyon. As the count reaches zero, the X-2 is launched at a 56-degree angle and reaches its maximum speed of 394 miles an hour five seconds after liftoff. The engine has burned out, but the X-2 coasts upward until it reaches its peak altitude 15 seconds after launch. The X-2 slows to 227 miles an hour. As it levels off, a preset gyroscope triggers the parachute recovery system at 3,000 feet altitude, nearly a mile downrange. Then a drogue chute deploys, and it in turn pulls out the main parachute. The entire sequence takes eight seconds, giving Evil a series of 3G jolts at each separate stage of the recovery sequence. 23 seconds after liftoff, the X-2 has descended to 2,200 feet and begins floating to Earth at approximately 15 miles an hour, landing two minutes and three seconds after launch if all goes well. Evil is not wearing any special kind of protective gear other than a fighter pilot's helmet and is not undergoing any specialized training or physical conditioning for the flight. It all sounds so simple, doesn't it? If the plan went according to how... Jules Bergman just told us it would. The jump would last 15 seconds tops, maybe 20 seconds tops. When we talk about how much time he'd be floating down, he'd be well on the other side of the canyon. Everything would be absolutely perfect, and that's how it was going to go. It does sound like a very simple plan, but it's so audacious and audacious and insane that you just have to sit back and think about it for a second. When he talks about evil has no protective gear on, he's not wearing anything to really help him out. He has no real control over the flight path of the thing other than what happens to it once it leaves the ramp. He's got these two little foot pedals and these two tiny canards to try to keep it from going into a, a barrel roll. Other than that, he's got nothing doing. We talked about Jim Lovell, the astronaut. Jim Lovell was involved with Bob Truax in coming up with the design for this particular vehicle. And Jim Lovell was a central part of the broadcast of the event on Closed Circuit and later on ABC. Let's listen to Jim Lovell introduce himself to David Frost and the broadcast audience here in the show. Thank you very much indeed, Dan. And now it's my pleasure up here to introduce my two colleagues here with their expert comments on what we're about to see this afternoon. First of all, the veteran of two Gemini missions, two Apollo missions right beside me, Captain Jim Lovell. Jim, you've been looking at how far the procedures have been going this afternoon. Would you like to bring us up to date? Yes, thank you, David, very much. First of all, let me say that this is reminiscent of some of the early Mercury days, the charge of electricity in the air, the spectators, even last night around Spring Falls. Uh, we are a little bit more technical than more people, most people think we are. Bob Choi uh, has done a wonderful job on making a normal countdown to a rocket launch, which I've known in many years. For instance, the countdown really started today at about 9.20. We went through some mechanical functional checks. We looked at the lever of the piston that will rupture the disc that will start the engine going. We looked at the shock absorber in the nose of the vehicle that will uh, attenuate the shock on the other side of the canyon. And more important, we looked at the canards or the little flippers on the front of the vehicle that, uh, that Eva will have a chance now to control roll just a little bit if he can. We used it one time, had an automatic system that has been taken out now. Evil has manual control over roll. Then again, going along, we looked at electrical functional checks, especially the master arm switch in the cockpit, uh, which Evil has to throw before the vehicle is ready to go. And then we checked the fire button on a 
handle very similar to a, a handle in a fighter plane, which he has to push to fire the rocket himself. And here comes people now, I believe. We've got to interrupt you there. It looks as though Evil Knievel is making an early arrival. And I think his family have arrived with him. We're looking at them about 50 yards away. You're seeing on the screen there, as clearly as we are. So he has arrived. The man of the hour has arrived at the jump site. And just one point on what Jim Lovell was telling us. He has those flippers. He has those canards so he can control roll. Do you know how insane this is? This guy has never flown in anything. He's never flown an airplane. He's never flown anything even close to this. There's no way to simulate how to make this stuff work or function. And yet you're going to send this guy in a rocket with no experience doing anything like this at all and give him manual control of the vehicle's uh, left to right or rolling movement. It's mental. It, you wouldn't even be able to do this today. And I know guys have done it, but it's had a little bit more advanced technology than what we saw at a SkyStyle X2. Anyway. We've gotten to that point. We understand how the vehicle works. But the one thing we really have to understand, and Jim Lovell's going to tell us here, is how the parachute deployment system works. This will become a central part of this story. Because as we all know, the jump fails. But why does it fail? It fails because of the parachute. But why? Let's first listen to how the parachute is supposed to function by Jim Lovell, who again helped to work with Bob Truax and design the X2 Sky Cycle. And tell us, uh, how is Evil feeling now? Well, Evil is feeling uh, quite good. He's quite calm. In fact, the whole family is calm. I think we're at the stage now where he realizes that we've done all we can do. Uh, I reassured him that I thought Bob Troix was a, an excellent technician, uh, an engineer. And we did tell him to make sure to hold the lever back on lift on launch because we don't want to uh, pre-release the uh, drogue shoot. Can we just explain that a bit to people watching and they understand that very clearly, but in fact, Evil will be holding back. Could you explain the 45-pound weight? Yes. At one time in the vehicle, we had an automatic system that would release these chutes. This did not work too well. As a matter of fact, it released it prematurely on the last launch. So now Evil has a switch which he must hold back with 45 pounds of pressure. And when he wants to release the chutes, he leaves the lever go forward. Now this is uh, rigged this way so that something happens to him, say he blacks out, he'll release the lever automatically and the chutes will open. Of course, we don't want the chutes to be released prematurely because it would slow down the trajectory and he'd land in the river. And so that's the main thing he has to do is hold back that lever until the proper time which is about 10 seconds after the thrust terminates and he coasts up to after. So now we know, as Jim Lovell has told us, that there is a basically a dead man style switch to release the parachute in the Sky Cycle X2. Dead man means that the it is, a, I guess we call it a, uh, a positive acting switch. You have to maintain the pressure on the switch. The second that you are unconscious, the second you are unable to maintain your strength to hold with that 45 pounds of pressure, it's going to release the parachute. And this was done for obvious reasons. If Knievel was knocked unconscious, which many people thought he would have been on the launch of the Sky Cycle, they would want the parachute to deploy to try to save his life so the thing didn't completely go out of control and, and, and kill him. So we understand now how that's going to work. You talked about how we talked about how they had some earlier, more advanced systems on these on these machines, and you actually heard Jules Bergman in his piece earlier in the show talk about how that the parachutes would be released by a gyroscope. And that's exactly what Jim Lovell talked about them removing because they couldn't get it to work right. So they went back to the old tried and true method of a spring and a handle that you had to maintain pressure on in order to keep the parachute inside the vehicle. 
To give you an idea of what Evil's mental state was at this point in the day, it was right about now that he invited Bob Arum and Bob Arum's two sons to come into his trailer as he was making his final preparations for the jump. During the conversation with Bob Arum and his two sons, he got down on one knee, got level with Bob Arum's two kids, who were both in their, I think, 10 to 12-year-old range, looked him in the eye and said, hey, just an FYI, if I get killed out there today, I don't blame your dad. So if I die, it's not your dad's fault. Don't worry about it. You know, I, I chose to do this. I don't blame your father. So, hey, if something goes horribly wrong and the kids at school start teasing you, you know, let them know that I told them that uh, I told you that it's uh, I don't blame your dad at all if I don't make it. And he said Aram looked around and thought, oh, boy. And Knievel told his sons that he wanted Aram's two boys to watch the jump with Linda Knievel and his kids. And Bob Aram said, no way, baby. As soon as they left, Aram took his kids and got them the heck out of Dodge. And they were uh, watching from a remote location somewhere, but they were not in the thick of the madness, apparently. Two kids that were watching the jump live and in person were the sons of then-president Gerald Ford. And that's going to be an interesting tie-in we'll get to in a little while. So now we advance on to the next phase of the day. And you, you're hearing the helicopters whirring overhead. You're hearing the kind of hustle and bustle of this jump. Now it's time for a conversation an interview with David Frost. Frost, the English voice you've heard, is the host of the show, and at this time in history, David Frost is one of the, if not the most famous, interviewer in the world. He interviews famous people, and he gets the good stories out of them. So now it's time for David Frost to talk to Evil Knievel pre-jump. Knievel's come out of his truck. He is in the last minutes before he's actually going to get in the rocket and take off, and so now David Frost stops him on a platform at the base of the ramp and conducts this interview, which had to have been about as comfortable as interviewing a guy who was heading to the gallows. Just crazy. As Jim Lover was saying just now, Evil, you never normally get a chance to talk to an astronaut just before blast-off. And uh, can I ask the question, therefore, to you as an astronaut that millions are asking at this moment, what, what do you think your chances are? I think my chances right now are 90% goal. I've got a team behind me with Mr. Truax and all the boys that are 100% and... I think we'll do it. I wish the wind wasn't blowing so hard, but I think we'll do it. You think you'll both not only come back here for our second conversation in the afternoon, you think you'll do it without mishap, or you mean you think you'll come through whatever happens? Well, I hope so. That's, that's the only feeling I have. How have you prepared yourself, Evil, both mentally and physically for this moment? Mentally, obviously, to get in condition, and physically after all those injuries that we've talked about over the last eight years? Well. David, I've kept myself in good physical shape. I don't drink very much, and I have never taken a narcotic. And uh, I'm ready to go. I'm in good physical shape, and mentally right now I'm 100%. I'm ready to go. Would you like young people to follow your example, obviously not in leaping into rockets, but in terms of the way you live your life? I would say to live it as God made you to live it. Don't take a narcotic. Live like you were made to live, like he put you here. That's the way to do it. And you're physically fit, too. I mean, because you've broken, you told me, once 50 bones, is it, altogether? Quite a few, but I'm well healed, believe me. Now, what are the number of things you've got to remember somehow or other to do in those vital few minutes in the rocket? How many things have you got to do? There are a number of them. When the master switches, switches the T-60, I've got to release the parachute pin, or Mr. Campoy does. Uh, we've got to get everything ready to go. T-minus 30. Uh, we have the camera switch to go on, the radios uh, hold back on the parachute uh, arm, and then with 15 seconds to go and then 10, there's no further acknowledgement needed from me, 
And when he says fire, I uh, am going to fire and go. And then, do you expect to red out or black out when you take off, or what? I hope not. So you will make that decision after 15 seconds and uh, activate the shoot? I will. David, we're running 10 minutes behind. We've got to go. Well, we're all ready for you to go. I would just want to... Father Sullivan is waiting to say a prayer up here because you wanted, I know, there to be a prayer before you took off, and you've obviously thought about a lot about life and death. Are you afraid at this moment? I've never been afraid in my life of dying under any circumstances. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian, and I think that it was my duty, which I did just a moment ago to myself, to thank God that I lived in a country like this and that when I look up that ramp and see that old glory flying there in front of me, that I could thank God that I had a chance to be born here, to do this, and as far as the dying goes, if I have to hit that wall over there on the other side, I think that maybe I would rather do that than become the victim of a senseless tragedy. I'd rather be busted into the wind like a like a meteorite and not become just dust. I think that a man was put here on earth to live, not just to exist. And today is the proudest day of my life. I'm living a dream that they thought could never be done, but it'll be done. And that closing end of the interview with Frost is this classic Evil Knievel. If you've ever listened to him speak or seen video of the speeches he would make before and after his jumps, the idea of, you know, I'd rather flame out in front of everybody than just fade off into nothingness. And that kind of uh, just kind of crazy bravado is what defined this guy's life, and it's what made him a, a hero. So he maintains this right to the end, and he does say he's 90% confident that he's going to make it. Um, I don't even think he believed that, and certainly – other than maybe Bob Truax and Jim Lovell, and I'm not even sure they believed it because Bob Truax was asked point blank if he would ride in the thing he built, and he said no. (laughs) So that gives you uh, Truax's level of confidence in the whole operation. So following on the timeline, he does the interview with Frost, and then he gets into a little seat, the same type of a seat that you see people when they paint the side of a ship. The guy hangs off the side, and he's on the little hanging chair. Well, if you can imagine, they have one of those hanging chairs dangling from the end of a crane, and they're going to lift Evil Knievel up into the rocket. He could have climbed up into the rocket. There were ladders on the side, and there's a couple guys on those ladders that are helping him get in this thing. Um, But there was a company that sponsored the crane and paid money, so that's why they used the crane. Apparently that they wanted to make sure that the uh, the check cashed and that company got its uh, moment of fame in this whole process. So what happens at this point when Knievel is being... Uh, hoisted, if you will, into the rocket, is that this just ridiculous song begins to play. And it's a song about Evil Knievel. And during the playing of this song, there is a poem that is recited by Knievel in his own voice. It was pre-recorded, obviously. And the name of the poem is Why. And supposedly, Evil wrote this poem himself. It is certainly not something that um, you're going to find in any sort of text involving the wonders of poetry written over the course of history. But again, for the theater of the moment, for the theater of the time, it is absolutely and utterly pure evil can evil. So if you can imagine him dangling from a little seat at the at the base of a or at the end of a crane's boom, and this is being played as he is being hoisted over into his rocket ship, it just absolutely defies the imagination. Bob, you uh, and your men 
have done every possible thing that you can do, and uh, myself and my family know that, and hey, the rest is up to me, so I hope that I am Hold good in my job, you are in yours. Hold friend. on to that shoot lever until the right time. Happy landings, Evil. Thank you, David. I'll be back. I'll see you in a few minutes up here. And as he swings into the air, he'll be back. Here is the song written about the man, the ballad of Evil Knievel. He lived from day to day, never thinking about tomorrow. Body shows his scars, fate has dealt his way. Riding on the edge of danger, secure in prayers that God has heard him say. He can move a mountain, leap across the winding river. Once he's made his mind up, there's nothing he won't try. Everywhere in this world I go, no matter who or what I know, the people, they look, and most of them stare, and I wonder if they really care. You see this cane with his golden crown? Some of them smile, but most of them frown. Each time I was hurt, they all said, that guy is lucky that he's not dead. They were right. But I wanted to get up to try it again. I kept telling myself that I knew I could win. So I'd close my eyes and to the Lord I would pray. Oh, help me, God. Let me walk someday. And he did. Every stitch on every scar it just brought me closer to my dream afar. To be a man and to do my best, to stand alone is my only quest. Success is a term that has broad use. For you and I to have none in life, there's no excuse. For you to do what I do is not right. But for me, it's not wrong. What I've been trying to tell you all along is that it's got to be. So, if you wonder why, the answer to that is, just like you, I've got to be me. This episode of the Dorkamoto Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, 
Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. So at this point, there's only one thing left to do after all the months and all the buildup and the years of Knievel claiming he was going to do this thing. He actually needs to do the thing. He is in the rocket. It is solely in his hands. And we will find out in front of God and everybody whether or not Evil Knievel and his small team of merry men, promoters, rocket builders, and astronauts alike, have done a good enough job of creating a vehicle for him to clear the Snake River Canyon. This is what the jump sounded like. Three, two, one. You released prematurely. He started to roll and he's coming back this way now. And there's, there's the top chute is out, the main chute is out. There she goes. She needs the rim of the cannon. Going to crash, obviously, into the, the river. It is okay, though. She's coming down about 17 feet per second. Slowly going down. Just clear the rocks, David, I can't see anything. The helix, nobody has gone into the water. As I say, there are two men rowing up to the site. What about the other? No motor-driven boats down there. I can't believe it. Well, that river, again, will repeat. It's about 15 to 18 feet deep. The helicopter should have a recovery crew on board, plus there should be boats down there with a recovery crew. Where is the recovery helicopter? What news do David, we have? I am very scared. What news do we have of the recovery helicopter? Danny, you'll let us know as soon as we get even the radio. The nose of the craft appeared to, to hit on the side of the canyon. Perhaps we can see it again on slow motion. Here we go. Yes, the chute yeah. released okay. just about before he cleared the end of the ramp. That's right, Len. The, the chute deployed, and there was a reposition. Then, just as he cleared the ramp, two seconds later, it brought out the main chute. It, it reefed or de-reefed two seconds, and the main chute was out. Still, while that engine was firing, the craft appeared to spin as soon as it took off. I, I think Evil is in the helicopter. So now we have seen the jump. You have heard the jump here in this podcast, of course. You can find the video of it on YouTube if you'd like to actually watch the event. The rocket, as it's heading up the launch pad, has the parachute fall out. And despite the fact the parachute, the drogue chute, the small chute came out and then pulled the big parachute out that would ultimately cause his uh, forward motion to cease, the thing made it basically over the canyon. It is the most incredible video to watch all the different angles of this thing. But he basically made it over. And then the major parachute blossomed. And when that happened, the wind, which was blowing 20 miles an hour in his face, carried him all the way back across the canyon and into the opposite canyon wall, basically where he just launched from. He then plummeted in the canyon with the parachute blossomed, bouncing off the wall of the canyon and landing about eight feet away from the river. The video of this is incredible because you can see him struggling inside the vehicle to get his belt released, and he couldn't do it. 
if the Sky Cycle had landed in the water, Evil Knievel would have drowned at the base of Snake River Canyon. He came within 10 feet of basically being in a watery grave because he was packed so tightly into the vehicle he could not access the seatbelt release. And for years, I always thought that he let the parachute out early. For years, the narrative in my mind was always that when the G-Force hit and when that thing started to take off, he let go of the handle, and that was it, or he was knocked unconscious, or some other human physical reason was the cause for the failure of this jump. And I was wrong, and I'm going to prove it to you that I was wrong, and I'm going to prove to you that anybody says that he released the parachute himself early is wrong as well, because there is not only video, but audio proof that he didn't do that. It was a vehicle failure that caused Evil Knievel's Snake River Canyon jump to end in disaster and not in glory. But before we get to the reasons of that, we have to go back to some crazy audio. Knievel has been fished out of the vehicle. He has been saved. He has been brought back to base camp by the rescue helicopter. He is being swarmed by throngs of people, and he is now being interviewed by the guys on the broadcast to try to figure out what the hell just happened. you got to remember, this guy basically almost died about two minutes to three minutes before you're going to hear this particular interview. And this was not some gentle floating trip down into the canyon. This was a vehicle that was bouncing off rocks. If it had landed one way, it would have crushed his skull into the rocks in different places, but he had survived it. And the scene has become a calamity. Fences have been knocked over. The crowd rushed to the edge of the canyon to look down and see what was going on. It is incredible that nobody fell in during the process of the jump because everybody ran the fences over and went to see what was going to happen as the vehicle descended into the canyon. So now let's catch up with Evil Knievel having survived the Snake River Canyon jump and he is beginning to feel some of the ignominy that will come from the legacy of this failed attempt. I don't know what happened, David. You don't know? I don't know what happened. The machine... Everybody out of the way. Now move aside. It turned sideways, and Ron Chase, who was in charge of the parachute, told me if anything happened, if I saw the canyon wall underneath me, for Christ's sake, to, to blow the chute because something had happened. The machine had gone sideways on me and was... And was going to to turn the wrong direction. So and, and you you did you pull the parachute yourself? I just tried to steer the I tried to steer and then I felt like a brake and I didn't realize that the chute was open. I didn't know what happened. All I know is that the jolt I got uh, on the original blast pop just and were you and were you still in the craft when it hit the ground? It hit down there two or three times. I couldn't get my I couldn't get my uh, seatbelt undone because of the position the thing put me in when it blasted off and I thank God I didn't go into the river. Boy, I could have never got out of it. Right. Did it, did it go into the water or hit the water? Be careful. Did, did it hit the wall or go into the water? Or you may go up. I want to go up and see the crew first. All right, let's do that. Hit the shelf of rocks. Are you sure you're right? And then bounced into another shelf of rocks. Hit one shelf and then bounced into another. I love Evil. Oh, I don't know, Joey. How rough was the landing? Oh, it hit on two or three shelves and bounced down, but I was strapped in so tight that uh, it came through it all right. I, uh, I don't know what happened. It, uh, you lost the spring? I, it, went, the it, spring? it went sideways. It turned. And I don't know what happened down here, but Ron and Bob both told me if I saw the canyon wall and not the sky, for Christ's sake, to let it go. And when it turned, I... 
let her fly. I didn't know what had happened. It just about knocks you out, Jules, when it takes How, did, how were you rescued, though? How were you rescued, Eva? Well, it, you they were. came and got me out down there in the trees and uh, put me in the boat. I couldn't get my safety belt unharnessed. unharnessed. If I'd have gone in the river, I'd have never got out of it, ever. Where did you land? Right on the shore? Well, I hit, no, I landed into the wall on this side and then bounced down. But I don't know what happened. It's just that I think... I don't know. I just can't say. I'll have to let Bob the fellas examine it. Are you going to try it again? Well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I uh, I sat in it and gave it my best, and I don't know what to tell you. So to me, this is the most honest accounting you're going to hear of the jump because it's happened to the point you can hear the adrenaline still in his voice. You can hear the thankfulness of not landing in the river. He knew he was a dead man if that thing went in the water. And it makes it even more terrifying when you think about him descending into that canyon, doing whatever he can to try to get out, knowing that if he hits the water, it's over, Johnny. He lives through it. And he lives through it with basically a broken nose. He has a bloody nose and some scrapes and bruises and not a whole lot more than that. And when he talks about, you know, I, I, they told me if I saw the canyon wall to let it go, he was telling us that he held on to the parachute and then he let it go, but he didn't realize the thing had already blossomed. But how did it already blossom if he was still hanging on to the parachute lever? I firmly believe he never let that parachute lever go until he felt the thing heading toward the canyon wall. And Bob Truax knows that too. Because Bob Truax, in the next series of interviews, is going to tell us exactly what happened. And again, these are recorded minutes after the jump. So this is, no one really has time to make up a, a story. No one really has really had time to make up an alibi of the failure. You're going to get some real honest opinion here of, from the guy, Bob Truax, and Jim Lovell, who actually built the vehicle that ended up failing underneath Evil Knievel. If you can believe it, Evil Knievel had the guts to hold on to the parachute handle. The parachute handle and the parachute itself didn't have the guts to hold on to the Sky Cycle X2. Okay, everybody on the ramp. It blew on the ramp. Just like the last time. Take it easy with him. It blew on the ramp. It stop it. He got hurt his leg. What happened to it? It, it, it let go just like the other one, but apparently to a completely different cause. It I had my leg on top of it, my hand back. You didn't let go of it right here until I saw the thing. And then you let go of it. Then you let go. I can't understand what made it turn upside down. Oh, well. It was kind of a slow roll. You didn't do a damn thing wrong. The can is still on the thing. It blew up right here on the lower left by accident. Yeah, it was our fault. Yeah. That's no, what it's not your fault. It's the yes, it is. We should have run one more test. All right. Uh, let's let's try to get. It. Is the helmet on? Uncomfortable. Let's get it off. Didn't you know it though? Yes. Easy, 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 fellow. There's Evil about to be embraced by his father, Robert Neville Sr. We'll try to talk to Bob Truax himself in a minute. Bob, what happened? Well, this right here is the cover to the parachute canister. It obviously came loose much too soon, right on the pad, because it was impaled on this part, which goes up the rocket nozzle. 
So it, it must have detached immediately, either because of a pressure differential between the forward and after side of it created by the rocket jet, or because the weight of the, the parachute and the G's, the inertia of it, yeah. caused it to pull the, uh, the lid off the can. This cover wasn't supposed to come off until he was at apogee at 2,500 feet when he released the parachute, right? That's right. And so the rocket went up, the engine thrusting madly, and the parachute dragging behind and trying to slow it down. It trailed right out. Yes, what it you're, deployed what immediately. Saying, what you're saying is that the force of the G's that lift off and the suction created by the engine slipstream probably pulled this off. That's our best guess at this time. And so the emotional traumatic Sunday at the Snake River Canyon had reached its end, not the way evil had hoped, nor the way some people had feared. And so there you have, to me, the final irrefutable evidence that Evil Knievel did not, under any circumstance, let go of the handle. And I thought he did for years. And there was a part of me that maybe wanted to think that he did. Because this is a guy who you have to respect for his bravery, you have to respect for his guts, you have to respect for the gumption that it took to promote himself and do the things he did over the course of his life. But he's a tough guy to root for when you actually get down to the base of Evil Knievel. He wasn't a great guy. He wasn't necessarily the person he projected himself to be in those heroic speeches he'd make before and after he jumped. He would say things to kids that he would effectively violate them minutes after he proposed these things to kids. Don't do drugs. Well, he did some of those. Don't drink. He tells people, I didn't drink that much. He drank a lot. But in this case, the man did what he was supposed to do, and the vehicle underneath him failed. And I think that's an important point. I think when we look at the Snake River Canyon jump, it is a failure, of course, because the vehicle did not go over the canyon. And in fact, it landed, you know, a couple hundred yards, theoretically, from where it left, if it was even that far, when it crashed down into the base of the canyon wall. But the story's not quite over yet, because ABC, having the luxury of being a week after the event, understood what happened. So what they did was they played the jump, but they also made a special that had Jim McKay. You heard Jim McKay's voice when he said, the jump day ended not the way they planned it or the way some people expected. And Jules Bergman back, the science reporter. I'm sure Jules Bergman was sick of Snake River Canyon by the time this was done because poor Jules Bergman, a respected science reporter, was like the science expert of the world on the Snake River Canyon jump. He was all over the place for ABC and their coverage. So let's listen to a little bit of this studio interview done basically a week after the jump. And this is Evil Knievel sitting with Bergman and McKay, and they are going to kind of dissect what happened. And uh, a subdued, a very subdued Evil Knievel is going to explain his side of the story as well. Through the wind and the dust, he descended to where his wife Linda was waiting for him. In the background, the cheers continued from the more than 33,000 by official count that paid to see the attempt and obviously were still behind him. All of this last Sunday. Jules, I think you had a question just before we went away. Right. Yeah. Evil, here we are a few moments before launch. The knot in your stomach was just about to go away, that knot you'd awakened with every morning you mentioned to me. What was the actual punch, the thrust of the rocket like as you started up the ramp? When I hit the fire button, I had one hand wrapped down around behind me on the webbing underneath my seat, and uh, I had my knee over the firing gun and my arm that held the parachute. I had that blocked off and when I punched that fire button and that thing hit it I saw the flag coming right at me the American flag and it went underneath me and all I saw was blue sky but then I lost all perspective I may have blacked out I don't know but I did come to with that 
jolt and it was like brakes being put on and I was upside down and I saw the canyon underneath me and uh, I looked at the stopwatch they had strapped to my leg and I saw that there was only nine or ten seconds gone by. Would you like to see it now uh, as other people to. saw it? Yes, I have never seen it. I the way you yourself have it. never seen it, right. Yeah. Well, we have several angles here and uh, first is this one. This is a slow motion shot, slow I guess, motion. of the yep. takeoff. Look at that chute come out behind that thing. And you can there. see clearly the chute did come out on the pad, Evil, long before you could have released Jules, it. Jules, I never fired it. I'll tell you that. I never had a chance. There's no the doubt about that in anyone's mind who was there and saw the parachute can cover afterward. Here she is starting to roll over on her side. One complete roll to the right and then the main chute, pulled out by the drogue chute, uh, is deployed. And you're heading down. What this, did it feel like at this moment? Well, I... Right then I knew, I could see, I was over the side of the canyon and then the river coming back in at me and uh, Ron Chase uh, was on the microphone telling me, take your uh, visor and raise it and I tried but there was such a tight squeeze in that cockpit that I could only rip the visor off, which I did. I ripped it away uh, with my hands and then tried to get to my safety belt to find out where it was so that if I went in the river, which I thought I was going... Yeah, what did you think your chances I were right here living? Did Jim, I want to tell you something. I could not get to the safety belt. In other words, yeah, I couldn't wall. find it. How big a jolt was that impact? Well, I hit a glancing blow there and I, I dropped down another 65 or 67 feet, so I, I'm very thankful that parachute didn't collapse when it hit there because, you see, I, I hit that rock wall and then dropped down. I was seven and a half feet from the water when they finally got to me. So uh, with the seat belt not opening to get me out of the thing, I would have gone to the bottom of that river and uh, it took us six months to find the first sky cycle. I don't know how soon they'd have found me, but if I couldn't have got out of it. Now me, here's another fantastic view from behind as you shoot off the pad. There. I see the vehicle is rolling in Ooh, the air. You see it rolling immediately yes. and you see the shoot out immediately. You see that darn uh, pilot chute came loose also. You see that? And the, the shrouds are twisting. Here's where people like myself thought they could see you struggling to get the visor up I was, the cockpit. I, I was tearing it. You can see I'm trying to get my arms above, uh, out of the cockpit, and I was getting the visor away from my eyes. Are you In slow motion, there's the parachute canister already out. It blew the can right off the back. Instantly, wasn't it? Yeah. See, it started to turn when I got over upside down, and I could see the canyon below me. And here's where I felt the brakes. I didn't know what had happened. I, I just couldn't figure out what the hell had happened because my knee and my hand were frozen on the on the uh, ejection system. I just didn't know uh, if I'd blacked out or if Watch I was going closely. into the you canyon. You see your what. arms there the way you were trying to get out, right there. I wasn't trying to get out. I was trying just to trying to rip my visor off and trying to get my, my uh, safety strap in hand so that if I went into the water, I could have a chance to get out of the thing. But, uh, so you had no time planned to jump out of it? We thought we were going to go across. Bob Truax came to me and said, Evil, if you want to call this thing off, you don't owe me a dime. And we all looked at each other and smiled and run. And Bill Sproul and Facundo Campoy, they all said, Evil, you're going to make it. And I got in it with that thought in mind. That's all there is to it. Why didn't you want to use the personnel chute? Well, we just felt that I would ride it all the way in. I didn't want to parachute out of it. I said I'd try and ride it across and nosedive it in, and that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know... If there's any uh, seed of equivalent benefit in this uh, adversity, uh, I can only tell you that it's still my being alive, and I, under all circumstances, 
regardless of what happened, do not feel that we failed, and I do not feel ashamed in any way to have been defeated by a canyon as beautiful and as mighty as the Snake River Canyon. That's all there is to it. Well, here, well, here it is from one of our helicopter cameras. It sure is beautiful. And there is, there is a launch now from the helicopter there camera. Goes. Boy, it's on its way across to you. And you can see the chute slowing you down. You can see the headwind carrying you back in now. The wind had gotten very gusty. I just, uh, the last words I said to Bob when he left the, the uh, blast-off pad, I said, Bob, what is the wind? He said, 12 miles an hour, gusting to 15 and 18. I said, do we have a chance? He said, yes. If it will go all the way, you're going to make it. And, do you feel uh, that you went actually across the camera uh, canyon before you started to drift back? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, at 18 miles an hour, it blew me back in, and how many seconds you can figure out how much ground I here's, covered. Here's your impact. you got to remember, Jim, that parachute all the way open acts like a huge sail on a sailboat. It carries the vehicle right back. Yeah. We had now a great recovery team uh, in the bottom uh, my own pilot, Mr. McCullum, and all the fellows that were on recovered the thing. Look at this shot now. It's from the other side, looking back, from another yes. helicopter. And again, you see it start down and then backwards. What a strange feeling it was when that parachute opened. I was trying, when I got upside down, I was trying to work those little flippers to turn the thing. And when I pressed on one, I thought, boy, somebody put the brakes on. I thought, what the heck? They did tell me there was brakes on this thing because I had never known that the parachute systems came out. I Are you getting a, a kind of emotional reaction watching this again for the first time? Oh. Does it look better or worse? Or I've what? lived with this thing for so long that, uh, you know, I look at it and, and uh, obviously I was disappointed and not knowing what happened, I thought uh, I'm going to be blamed for Here's a premature parachute uh, ejection, which I did not make, and uh, there were a lot of things going through my mind. Now there's the impact on the side of the canyon. You're sliding down toward that rock shelf at the edge of the river. That's where they ended up finding me. <laughs> okay, well, there's a few separate views of what happened at the Snake River Canyon last Sunday. In another minute, we'd like to ask you some personal questions about okay. Evil Knievel, the man, how you feel, and so forth. I'll be right. right back. Would you do it again? I uh, am a motorcycle jumper, not a sky cycle jumper. I had to earn the money to build the sky cycles to jump the canyon. And uh, I said I'd do it or try it once. I never said I'd try it twice. And uh, I see no point in it. I don't feel that the canyon defeated us. And uh, I think I'll withdraw for a while, but uh, maybe you have not heard the last of Evil Knievel. And so there you have it, in so many ways, the story, the epilogue, the ending of the Snake River Canyon adventure for Evil Knievel. It was, in many ways, the most glorious failure in stunt driving, stunt jumping history. Ken Carter, a voice that you actually heard, one of the voices you heard on some of the footage that we or the audio footage that we had on the show, is another stuntman, and he's the guy who attempted to jump the St. Lawrence Seaway in a, a rocket-powered Lincoln in the late 1970s, which will probably be the subject of another Dorkamota. But in terms of a, an epic buildup, an epic show, and an epic failure, it really doesn't get any bigger than Snake River Canyon. And this moment would come to define, in many ways, the career of Evil Knievel, because when that rocket reached its absolute pinnacle height that day at Snake River Canyon, it absolutely... 100% marked the ap the height and popularity of Evil Knievel's career. He would go on to jump again 
several times with notable jumps. Wembley Stadium in London, of course, the famous jump where he crashed and cleared the buses, crashed, broke his pelvis, and with a broken pelvis said, I walked in here, I'm walking out of here. He retired, quote-unquote, in Wembley Stadium, but he did jump again several more times, most famously Kings Island. The Kings Island jump was his last major league huge accomplishment. It was the longest jump he ever made, and at that point he had really kind of peaked, if you will. He had run out of ideas, not necessarily ideas, but certainly had run out of the gumption needed to continue to do this to himself, and you can't blame him. Unfortunately, it doesn't become a much happier story after that because despite the fact he was making less money and despite the fact his notoriety was dropping and despite the fact the toy sales were tailing off and despite the fact that his star was fading, he still spent money like he was making it in the glory days. And because of that, he went broke. And as he was going broke, he blamed other people for some of the problems, if you will, that caused him to have these financial hardships. One of those problems was a book, the book I referenced earlier by Shelley Saltman. Shelley Saltman, Evil on Tour, is a book that is impossible, unless you're a rich person, to buy a copy of today. It's a paperback that they, the copies sell for like over $1,000. If you're a crafty with the Google machine, though, you can find and read the book online. And I don't want to give away the place because I don't want it to get crashed. But if you use the Google machine, you'll be able to find and read this book. And it is unbelievable. And it made Evil Knievel so angry that he went and hunted down Shelley Saltman in Los Angeles and had a guy hold him down while he beat Shelley Saltman with, a, with an aluminum baseball bat. He was telling him he was going to kill him. Saltman had been putting his hands up over the area of his head to protect himself so he ended up with broken arms and broken hands and was very very banged up in the hospital Knievel ended up a convicted felon for this he ended up serving jail time for it which he was able to leave the jail every day it's a typical kind of Hollywood sentence I suppose but it really put a black mark on his career and and, and Evil Knievel would go bankrupt not very long after the Shelley Saltman incident he was awarded, Saltman was awarded some huge sum of money, $10, $12 million, and at that point, Evil Knievel declared bankruptcy. Evil Knievel died before he turned 70 years old, and a lot of that went back to a couple of factors. He had problems with his liver. Uh, his drinking was very heavy during his time in his career, and it got even heavier after he had stopped on the motorcycles. He, of course, suffered innumerable broken bones. He had arthritis very badly. He was a guy who unfortunately paid for every one of those crashes that he had earlier in his life. And the epilogue to the real jump story, the real weird twist, is this. I mentioned that Gerald Ford's sons were on hand at Snake River Canyon to watch the jump in person. Well, Gerald Ford, because, of he, because he knew his sons were so interested in this, because he understood the media circus around this particular event, because he knew that like all the nation's newspapers and so much of the nation's media was looking at Snake River Canyon, Gerald Ford chose this day, September 8th of 1974, to do one of the most important things he ever did as president. September 8th, 1974, as Evil Knievel was trying to jump over Snake River Canyon, President Gerald Ford was pardoning President Richard Nixon of any and all crimes he may have committed during his time as the President of the United States. It was a move that Ford made to, he said, to kind of heal a national wound, to put an end to some of this 
ugliness that had been going on, to the rage that was happening in the country, and certainly to the Watergate scandal and so much of the other dirty deeds that Tricky Dick Nixon was involved in. People say that ultimately it actually cost Gerald Ford the chance of winning the presidency on his own in the next election because it soured people's taste. But Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon in a way to try to calm the country. And he made that announcement on the same day that Evil Knievel was trying to fly over Snake River Canyon and had captured the attention of America. People felt as though they had been ripped off. People at the jump site felt as though they had been taken advantage of. The proposed parties, the proposed activities, the proposed fun and frivolity kind of turned into a dusty, hot, rustic nothingness for the folks that actually went and watched the jump on their own. You heard Jim McKay mention there was 31,000 people there. There were not 31,000 people there, five to 10,000 maximum. And it goes down in history as a failed jump. But when you know the whole story like you do now about how this whole thing came together, drinking at a bar in the 1960s and staring at a picture of the Grand Canyon, hiring some of the most brilliant and professional promotional people on the planet, jumping motorcycles around the country, and by word of mouth promoting an event that would turn into a national craze, and then ultimately failing in the most spectacular fashion possible, you understand why I have long been fascinated with Evil Knievel's 1974 Snake River Canyon jump. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast. I'm Brian Loans, and I hope you enjoyed this story. This episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts, as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net.